So this weekend, we are going to finish up our sermon series on the journey of mercy. And as we do so, uh, we have built this sermon series around this passage from Micah chapter 6, verse 8, that talks about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, uh, what the Lord requires of those who would come after him. Would you once again read these words with me this morning? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And we've talked about what that means, that we would love mercy. It means that when we have the power to punish someone or harm someone or to pay them back for what they have done to us, that it's not just that we withhold that punishment or that revenge, but that in fact we would exchange that to show mercy and grace and love. And so we've talked about that in our first three weeks about mercy in our hearts, that that mercy starts with understanding God's mercy towards us. We then looked at what it means to show mercy in our homes to the people who are closest to us, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, sons and daughters. And last weekend we looked about what it does it mean to show mercy in our churches. Today we're going to finish up by asking the question of what does it mean to show mercy in our communities and to the people all around us that God puts in our way. So to begin that, though, I want to lay out some scenarios for you. And I just want you to be honest with yourself as you think about these scenarios. What is your first impulse? What is, what is the first response that you have? Scenario number one. You have an appointment or something to do in Milwaukee, and so you go into downtown Milwaukee, and maybe you're running a little bit late, and you park your car. And you get out and it's a nice, brisk, cold Wisconsin winter day. And you're walking from your car the few blocks to where you need to get to. And you're looking at your watch and you're thinking about what you need to do and accomplish. And as you're walking along, very driven towards what you need to get done, along that path sits a young man. A young man in pretty dirty clothes, old stained, filled with holes, hair unkempt, sitting on a cardboard box. And as he speaks to you, you hear that there's a little slurring in his speech. Maybe it's from being tired or out in the cold, and he's shivering. And he says, can you help me? I just need something to eat today. Could you help me? What's your first impulse? Is it to ask the question, well, well, what if he takes the money, though, and then, and then buys alcohol or, or, or drugs? Or, or what if he takes the money and squanders it? Should I really give it to him and, 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 and do that? And, and what if he does this? Is that your first impulse, or is it the thought of not what if he does that, but what if I don't and he doesn't get something to eat? What's your first impulse? How about this one? Talking with some friends sitting around the dinner table and they tell you about a young lady that they know, a high school student, a teenager, who just found out that she is pregnant. And she went home and told her parents, but her parents, who are a very strict family, have decided that because of the dishonor this brings to them and the shame, that they have kicked their daughter now out of the house. So she is a pregnant teenage mother who now has nowhere to go. 
No understanding of how to find food. Maybe she's trying to go from couch to couch to couch. She wants to finish high school because she knows if she doesn't finish high school, then she doesn't know what it's going to mean for her, for her child. And so she's struggling with where do I go and how do I make ends meet and how do I find food for my family and for me and for my child when I carry this baby to term? Or should I even carry this baby to term? Because if I can't even find a place for me to live, how am I going to take care of this child? So do I keep the baby? Do I give it away? Do I abort my child? Like, what do I do in this situation? And she's struggling with this. But you have an empty guest room in your home. And you have more than enough food on your table, so much food that, well, at the end of dinner, you pack up a lot of it and you put it in the freezer for future meals. You have the ability to bring her in. What's your first impulse? What do you do? How about... What if she doesn't even speak English? What if Spanish is her first language? Doesn't look like you? Doesn't speak like you? Doesn't act like you? Does that change it? Does that change how you would respond? Or how about this one? You're going through the grocery store and you have your list and you've been putting things into your card and filling your card up. And, and in fact, after you filled your card up, as you're walking down the aisle, you do what we do all too often, which is you see other things that weren't on your list, but really, really look good along the way. So you start throwing in maybe a bag of chips here and a package of cookies there and, and uh, hoping to sneak them by without your wife or uh, your parents noticing, right? So you, so you got them in there and packed in there. And, and as you're walking to the checkout line, you notice a single father with three kids. And those kids, well, they are all over the place. They're hanging off of him. They're hanging off the cart. They're running around and dad is doing his best to, come on guys, we got to get to the checkout. We need to get home. I got to get done. We got to get your homework done. And and he's making sure that everything he needs in the cart and you look in his cart and you realize he barely has enough food in that cart to feed him and his three children for a week. And your cart is overflowing. And you get to the checkout line. And as you're checking out, uh, uh, he is, he's going before you and the kids are still over the, all over the place and, and he's trying to get the, the, the food onto the conveyor belt and down the line and it's a struggle. And, and as he does it, he finally uh, takes his wallet out and, and hands them his debit card and they run the debit card and it says, says not enough, insufficient funds. He says, all right, just, just let me have that back. And he ruffles through and finds a credit card and hands that to, to the checkout counter and, and uh, runs that through and it says, declined. And he has this look of hopelessness on his face. How am I going to pay for the food that is necessary for my children? But you have more than enough money, not just to pay for your cart, but his cart three times over. What do you do? How do you respond? Do you you think about, well, but what if I have car payments? What if my car breaks down? What if something goes wrong with my, do you do the what if scenarios or, or do you reach out and say, you know what, let me take care of that? What if he was wearing a turban and was Middle Eastern and he didn't have the same values that you have? He didn't care about the same things that you cared about. Does that change how you react? How about this one? You find out about a widow, a woman who had lost her husband, frail, she just got told that she can no longer drive, her license was taken away from her, and find out that she went to the doctor and the doctor told her, 
you have cancer. You're going to need treatments, consistent treatments. We need you to come in every single week for those treatments. But she's fragile and she just lost her license and she doesn't have family living in the area and she has no way to get to the treatments and the chemotherapy she needs. What do you do? Do you think to yourself, oh, you know what, I would love to help, but you know what, we have practices this week and we have games this week. And, and, and do you put the practices and the games and the schedule you have in front of the life-saving treatment that she needs? What do you do? Our last situation. You're in charge of hiring in your company. And a man walks in and uh, probably 40 years old and he sits down in front of you well-dressed and, and looking like he's very eager for the job and, and begins to talk about his experiences and, and begins to talk about his schooling. And you realize, and this is a perfect fit. He has all the education. He has all the experience. He has everything he needs to do this job. But you notice that there is a, a five-year missing gap in his job history. And so you ask him, what, what happened in that five years? He said, you know what? I made a mistake. I made a terrible mistake and I did something that affected me and my family and my children and, and I had to go to prison to pay for that mistake. And you know what? I was wrong and I admit it and I want to make amends for it and now I am trying to do everything I can to make up for all of the mistakes I made and to fix things for my family and, and I just, I need a job and I've been turned away time and time again. But I, I promise that and I have admitted my mistakes and I'm amending my ways and I could really use this, I promise, to be the best worker you will ever have. What do you do in that moment? Do you worry about, oh, you know what? I, I need to protect myself and protect my company, take care of myself, and, and, and what if he does it again? And what if he's not telling the truth? And what if, and what if, and what if? And you do everything you can to protect yourself at their expense. What was your first impulse in all of those scenarios? Was it to play it safe? Or was it to show mercy? How do we show mercy at all times and in all places to all people? This is the parable Jesus tells. And when we understand this parable, can I tell you that this parable should make all of us very uncomfortable when we understand the nature of what Jesus is saying in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan doesn't just start with Jesus teaching it. It actually starts with a question. The question of a lawyer who comes up to Jesus to test him and says to him, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? A very flawed question. Because what do you do to get a better inheritance? Find a better family, right? Like that's all you can do to get a better inheritance. You want a better inheritance? Pick a better family. Because that's how you get an inheritance. There's nothing you can do, and, and it's a flawed question. We understand there's nothing we can do to inherit eternal life. That gift of eternal life is a free gift of God at the greatest cost ever, the cost of the, the life of Jesus Christ given for you. But Jesus answers his question according to his question. He says, okay, well, if you want to know what you must do to inherit eternal life, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, you must love God and love others with everything always, giving everything up. And Jesus says, you know what? If you do that perfectly, 
If you did that every single day in every single moment without ever failing that, yep, you could live. Well, he's a lawyer, which means he knows the law. So in that moment, he goes, you know what, <laughs> man, remember when I was eight and I yelled at my parents and I didn't honor my father and mother and, and there are times I've talked against people or behind people's backs and broken the eighth commandment and, and I've certainly looked at what others have and wished I had it in a way that schemed to try and get it and broken the ninth and tenth commandment and, and I'm sure he's running scenarios going, you know what, they, there's no way I ever follow this. So he tries to limit it. Right? He is like bargaining with Jesus. Is there a way that we can make this work? So it says, he desiring to justify himself says, who is my neighbor? Do you see the nature of that question? It is a limiting question. He believes if I can limit who my neighbor is, maybe, just maybe, I can believe and justify myself that I've actually done this. So, so Jesus, well, what if my neighbor is, is just those who are living in Jerusalem? Or what if my neighbor is just Jews who live in Jerusalem? Or, or what if it's Jews who live in the, the northeastern part of Jerusalem? Or, or Jews that live within one and a half blocks of my house in the northeastern part of Jerusalem? Or how about just those who live in my, or how about just me? Right, because the more we can limit what God expects of us, the easier it is for us to say, you know what, I'm not so bad at doing it. But Jesus, instead of answering his question, who is my neighbor, decides to tell him a story. And this is his parable. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This is, uh, you can probably barely see it, but there's a, a little white winding stretch right along the hillside that is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, about 17 miles on that road, there is actually a section of it that's called the Bloody Way. Nobody knows for certain why it's called the Bloody Way, but we can surmise and believe that it's probably called the Bloody Way because that was where many robbers and thieves would go in one of the most dangerous sections of that road and would prey upon unsuspecting travelers who couldn't defend themselves and take from them what was theirs. And so Jesus telling this to some pious Jews, and this is very significant that you understand that and remember this, that Jesus is speaking to a lawyer and to a bunch of pious Jews who are, are all around him, says this man falls along the robbers along the way, and they probably have heard stories about this, or they know someone who was preyed upon, or know somebody's family member who was preyed upon, and, and so they're able to even picture this in their head, that he was stripped, beaten, and they left him for dead. It says, now by chance a priest was going down the road. So if you're a good, pious Jew at that time and you hear, well, there's a priest going down the road, your first impulse is to go, all right, here comes the hero. This is the guy who's going to save the person that's in the ditch. But instead, Jesus says, the priest walks by on the other side. And he says, and then a Levite shows up, and they go, okay, well, if the priest didn't do it, then certainly the Levite who knows God's law and what it means to love God and love your neighbor, he's going to help that man. It says, says, he also came to that place and walked on by. But then he goes, but a Samaritan journeyed. Now, as he teaches this, remember, they would have thought, okay, the priest and the Levite, they're the good guys. The Samaritan, he's the bad guy because in that culture, Jews and Samaritans hated each other, just absolutely hated each other. 
They would, have given, would not have given each other the time of day. Jews would have purposely, instead of traveling through Samaria where the Samaritans lived, would have gone out of their way to go around the section of Samaria because they wanted nothing to do with them. They would never have interacted with them, talked with them. They don't worship in the same places. There was great animosity, anger, friction, and hatred between them. And Jesus says, so a Samaritan comes and their thought probably was, all right, so he's going to finish the job because he's the bad guy. And Jesus turns everything on its head in that moment. It's like this. I don't know how many of you saw uh, The Wizard of Oz, but it's like watching The Wizard of Oz and then going to the musical Wicked. And you're like, wait a minute. So the Wicked Witch is actually good and, and, and has a better story than everybody else. Or it's, it's if you watch Sleeping Beauty and then you watch Maleficent. No, wait a minute, so that doesn't, right? Like, how does that, to them at that moment, they're like, no, that, the Samaritan can't be the good guy because the, the Samaritans are, are not God's people, but we're God's people, so we're the good guys and the Samaritans are the bad guys. And Jesus turns everything on his head and says, but the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And as Jesus continues, he's going to show us the three impulses of mercy that we've looked at and I want you to see again. And here's the first one. Then the despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. See, the first aspect is to see. And I think there's two reasons that oftentimes we don't see. The first one is, is we're too busy to see. I often wonder if, if that uh, Levite or that priest was walking along that road today, if it was that they would have been too busy to see because their heads were stuck in their iPhones. They were looking down and going, all right, uh, I have to get to Jericho. And after Jericho, you know, we got to take care of this. And then we got some sacrifices back in Jerusalem. And they're, they're kind of going through their itinerary and going, man, I'm too busy to do this. And, and look at all the things I have on my calendar. Or, man, I got like 16 emails I have to answer. And look at all these text messages. And, and all of these people need me. And they would have been too busy. Or they might have thought, you know what? This is too mundane a task. I have sacrifices to perform. I have people to take care of. You know, I have hundreds of people to take care of. I don't have the time for this one person. Do you want to have some of the most glorious pictures in Scripture of Jesus' life? Is not when he's teaching the crowds. But think about how many times in Scripture does Jesus stop from teaching the crowds to love one person to put mud on their eyes, to tell them that they can hear, to raise a widow's son from the dead, to allow a woman to touch his cloak and then have a conversation with her, or to stop at a well for a woman who is rejected by everybody else and to tell her of his great love for her. How many times in scripture does Jesus not care about the multitude but care about the one? And we miss it sometimes because we're so busy with games and practices and meetings and responsibilities and all of the things that we think we need to do. Or the second reason is because I think all too often we see people as a nuisance or the enemy. It's our world today. Think about how lacking mercy is in our world today. Impeachment trials, democratic debates, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, the world is filled with a lack of mercy. But that's never how Jesus saw people. 
Jesus did not see Saul as an enemy, even though he was killing Christians. He saw Saul as an individual who needed the love and mercy that only he could give to him. And he spent time just with Saul, who became Paul, so that we might know more about God's love. You know, one of the pictures in Scripture that Christians are most uh, pictured as is that of sheep. You ever notice that in Scripture? We're, we're, we're talked about as sheep, sheep who follow the shepherd and sheep who continue our love by that great shepherd. Do you know sheep have great eyesight? They have amazing eyesight. When they studied sheep, they found that, that because of the, 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 the rectangular nature of a sheep's pupils, that they have amazing farsightedness, one of the, the best animals in the animal kingdom with farsightedness. Not only that, but if you ever look at how creepily the eyes of a sheep are placed on its head, ever notice that? That because of that, they have amazing peripheral vision. They can see all the way around. They can see predators coming from behind. Do you know why they don't? Because when they eat, they never look up. They've actually found that the sheep are the least aware of almost all the animals in the animal kingdom. They have the greatest eyesight with the least amount of awareness because they never lift their heads. In fact, they have found that, that some sheep will actually, uh, right next to them, be, will be killed by predators and the sheep that is right next to them will just keep eating because they never pick their heads up and see. And I wonder how many times we as Christians, we just never pick our heads up to see. We're so ingrained in all of the things we have to do that we just don't take the time to look up and see and allow God to break our heart. And this is why I really encourage every person in your life to go on a mission trip. I've been on a couple, whether it was to Mexico to build houses or Honduras to serve those at Open Door Ministries. And can I tell you, when you are there, you can't help but have God open your eyes and see and have him break your heart because of that. That's what happened. He saw the man. God broke his heart with compassion. What do you do after that? He goes to him. You know, I believe one of the, the greatest idols that we have in our life as Americans is safety. We love safety. And in that moment, when he goes to that man, he was willing to give up safety because in order to show mercy to someone, you actually have to have a close proximity. And when you get close to brokenness, guess what you risk? Brokenness. And he goes to him in his time of need. And he could have asked the question, what might happen to me if I go to him? Could there be robbers? Could there be thieves? Could there be, what might happen to me? But I believe he asked the opposite question, not what might happen to me if I go to him, but what will happen to him if I don't? Do you see how opposite those questions are? What might happen to me? Who knows? But what will happen to him? He'll die. And he goes to him in this great act of love. It's like if you're going swimming at the swimming pool and you're sitting there poolside and someone's drowning in the pool and you look at the person drowning in the pool and say to yourself, man, I hope somebody comes along and saves them. That'd be really terrible to watch this happen. Or you go to the edge of the pool and you start pointing like, hey, somebody come over here and do something. Like, does anybody else see this? Or you get to the edge of the pool, you just sh start shouting encouragement. Hey, flail a little bit harder. Why don't you kick a little bit more? Maybe you can make it all the way here. Keep coming, you can do it. Does any of that help that person at all? No. 
In that moment, what do you need to do? Jump in the pool and help them. There's risk. But we know what will happen to them if you don't. And the last thing he does is he does something. See, go, do. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them, and then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. He did something. He took on the man's blood and his dirt and his brokenness and his stains. He didn't just walk over to the man and go, um, you know what, here's some money and, and I hope that you can, uh, if you get off the ground, that you can go to an inn and somebody can take care of you and then walks on by after dropping money at him. He didn't have the, the strategy that I think a lot of Christians have of see, pray, and walk away. You ever notice that sometimes that's what we Christians are really good at? We see someone hurting, we go over, how can I pray for you? And then we walk away. And we forget. See, pray, and walk away. He didn't do that either, either, did he? He saw, he went to him, and he did something to love him. Barna, in their research, said this. This is what they found. It said, when asked whose responsibility it is to care for those who are in need, less than one in six practicing Christians feels they personally have a primary obligation to help, either in person or by donating money or in other resources. Do you see that? Less than one in six Christians say, if I see someone lying on the side of the road, it's my responsibility. Less than one in six. Rather, and I thought this was kind of funny, the plurality of Christians feels that churches, which is kind of an oxymoron because who are churches? Well, that's Christians, right? So, so, but it's other Christians. And other Christian organizations, what are other Christian organizations filled with? Christians, but, you know, and nonprofits should shoulder the responsibility. So what they're really saying is other Christians, but not me. But it's our calling. We're called to be the Good Samaritan. And he goes to him and he binds up his wounds and he takes him to the inn. He says, I'll pay whatever it takes. Whatever the cost is, I'll pay it. And then he says, and I'm coming back. He comes back. He doesn't just see, pray, and walk away. He says, I'll take care of you and then I will come back to you time and time and time again. He loves the undeserving in inconvenient ways just as Jesus did with lepers and with those who were the sinners and the prostitutes and the tax collectors. He loved the undeserving in inconvenient ways all the way to the most inconvenient way of all by suffering a death on the cross. So I want to ask you this morning, who are you in the parable? Who are you? Because most of us would say, you know what the truth is, that sometimes I'm the Levite and sometimes I'm the priest. Do you know the original audience would never have said, well, I'm the Samaritan. I mean, the man at the end couldn't even say, when Jesus says, well, who is the, who's, who is the one who is being a neighbor? He, he couldn't even say the Samaritan. He says, well, the one who showed mercy because they hated Samaritans so much that no Jew would ever say, I'm the Samaritan. So do you know who Jesus wanted them to identify with? The person in the ditch. He's asking them, as you lying half dead in that ditch would want your enemy to do to you, so do it to others. Jesus flips the question on his head where they said, well, who's my neighbor? Asking, can I limit who my neighbor is? And Jesus instead says, not who is your neighbor, but who is being the neighbor? Do you notice that that question makes it limitless? Because our neighbors are everyone. 
It's those who would wear Bernie 2020 pins or would be voting for Elizabeth Warren. It's those who wear red hats with white lettering on them. It's those who are Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or atheist. Our neighbors are those who are from the United States or Mexico or those from Africa or South America or Germany. They may not be brothers and sisters in Christ, but that does not eliminate them from being our neighbors because your neighbor is anybody that God has put in your path that you would care for them and love them in their time of need. Do you know those scenarios I gave you at the beginning? Do you know where those scenarios were based off of? Matthew chapter 25. When Jesus separates the sheep and the goats, he says, blessed are you because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. Welcome into the kingdom of God. It's in our mercy that we show the mercy that God has first shown to us. The greatest act of mercy that we could ever give to anybody is displayed in what God has given to us and we can give to others. I just want to conclude with this story. In this book, it's called The God Impulse, The Power of Mercy in an Unmerciful World. A story is told about an event that took place in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1996. It says that there was a, a, gal, a gathering of members of the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK, and they were displaying symbols of hatred and, and they had a history of burning crosses. And, and in the midst of this, there was another group of protesters on the other side and suddenly, from the group of protesters who were protesting this, this gathering of a group of KKK members, it says, said somebody on the megaphone said, there's a Klansman in the crowd. And they whirled around, they saw somebody named Albert McKeel, a white man who was wearing a t-shirt with a Confederate flag in the middle of the protesters in enemy territory. And so they said, get him, kill him. And so the people started running after him and, and they knocked him down and fists began to rain and, and, and boots were lashing out to kick him. But in the midst of them, a young lady named Keisha Thomas, an 18-year-old African-American woman who came to protest, pushed her way through the crowd, threw herself over the top of this man and protected him. She said, you know what? I knew what it was like to be hurt. The many times that that had happened to me, I wish somebody would have stood up for me and it would have stood over me. And so I did it for him. What would you do? Would you show mercy? Or would you seek punishment? Because God calls us to be the means by which we love all people at all times in all ways. Because sometimes showing mercy means we sacrifice safety for sacrifice so that we might display the same mercy that God has shown to us in our greatest time of need, that we would love our enemies as God loves us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to show mercy because that is not natural to us. By nature, we would rather lash out or bring revenge and retribution, but you did not do that to us. And you showed mercy when we were enemies of the cross of Christ so that we might look at all people and show mercy, that we might not look at people as an inconvenience and unworthy of our mercy, but that we might see others as you see them and we might show mercy as you show us. So Lord, help us to see others, to open our eyes so we might have hearts that are broken. 
Help us to go to them, even if that puts us at risk, and help us to do what you have done for us and be merciful to them as they are merciful, as you are merciful to me. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you. Give to you his peace. Amen.